Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, this morning, as we continue our study through this epistle, the Apostle Paul, we come to verses 9 through 12. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Way back in 1967, one of the most admired celebrities of that era wrote lyrics to a song that became an anthem for all the disgruntled and oppressed youth of America. The song was performed by the Beatles, and Brian Epstein, their manager, said about the song, it was an inspired song, and the band really wanted to give the world a message. The songwriter, John Lennon, said about his motivation in writing this song, I am a revolutionary artist. My art is dedicated to change. Let me now share with you the deep, life-transforming message of this hit song. Love, love, love. Love, 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 love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. There's nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. Are you all ready to go change the world now? <laughs> that's a, such an inspiring... I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, when you read the lyrics, it's, it's a great... The music to that song is great, but when you listen to the lyrics read, it, it's nonsense, but yet... This was to be a message to change the world. This is what a generation embraced as their vision to change the world. There was another song written about the same time that became very popular, not in the broader culture, but in the Christian subculture of the time. It was a song that I would learn to sing at church camps and church retreats. And matter of fact, it was the first Christian song that I learned all the lyrics to. I've forgotten them by now, so I have to read them to you. But this is what this song said. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. All praise to the Father from whom all things come. All praise to Christ Jesus, his only Son, 
and all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. It's also a very simple song about the transforming effect of love. And it also came with a very annoying earworm of a tune. But the love that that song talked about was the kind of love that not only can but does change the world. It is changing the world all around us even today. It's been changing the world for a very long time. It's the kind of love that we're going to study this morning. The title of this section of 1 Thessalonians, if you have the ESV translation in front of you, and just a reminder that the titles that are at the top of each paragraph, each section, those aren't inspired. That's something somebody added later. But this is a good title to this section. If you go back to, to the, the beginning of chapter 4, if you have the ESV in front of you, it says, A life pleasing to God. And that is what Paul is trying to communicate, not just in the first eight verses we looked at last week, but these verses that are before us this morning, verses 9 through 12. A life pleasing to God, isn't that your goal? I mean, if somebody asked you what's your life about, I hope that would be your answer. I want a life that is pleasing to God. Well, it's interesting how Paul summarizes that in these two sections. Verses 1 through 8, we looked at last week, and verses 9 to 12, we looked at today. He basically gives two descriptions of a life that is pleasing to God. Last week, we saw that we please God by pursuing holiness, by pursuing our sanctification by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so the focus there was primarily on self-control, kind of an inward focus, pursuing holiness. That's a life that is pleasing to God, a life that pursues holiness. Today we're going to see in these few verses that the second aspect of a life that is pleasing to God is a life that is pursuing loving one another. We are to pursue holiness and to pursue loving one another. If we are to the degree to which we are successful in doing those two things, we will have a life pleasing to God. Aren't you glad to know that the Christian life really isn't that complicated? Pursue holiness and pursue loving one another. The problem is those are two of the hardest things that we have to do. The good news is we don't do it alone. And we don't do it by our own strength. God's will for our lives is that we be sanctified. As Owen said last week. God's will is for us to become like his perfect son, Jesus Christ. That's the inward focus. And as we do so, we are to be learning to love one another better and better and more and more. That's the outward focus of our life. It's interesting, the Apostle John wrote a lot about love in his first epistle. And in that epistle, he basically gives a clear criteria how you may know who are believers and who are unbelievers in the world. Who are true Christians and who are not Christians? Who are born again and who are not born again? He gave two criteria for knowing that. Let me read them to you. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see how John's saying the exact same thing? He's saying it in a negative sense. John says, if you don't practice righteousness, if you don't pursue holiness, and if you don't love your brother, 
then you can't be, call yourself a child of God. Paul says it in the positive way. If you want a life that's pleasing to God, live a life that pursues holiness and live a life that loves your brother and your sister in Christ. You see, the problem with John Lennon's song wasn't that it was too simplistic. There are a lot of great songs that have simple messages to them. The problem with the song, All We Need Is Love, is that John Lennon clearly didn't have a clue about what real love was. He throws the term out there, but the term in the culture was so ultimately vague and meaningless that there was no power in the message to do anything to a fallen culture. There was a popular cartoon in the 1960s that was based on two little cute little boy and little boy and a little girl figure cartoon. And every day they would have under the cartoon, love is, and then they'd supply some definition for love. And it was silly stuff like love is a warm puppy or, you know, love is a sunny day or love is, you know, feeling love is an experience. But that whole generation, that generation that marched forward saying all we need is love, 10 years later, you know what the big hit was on top 15 radio? The greatest pop song that spoke for its generation, the generation, my generation, the late 70s? I want to know what love is by Foreigner. <laughs> you want to know what love is, you got to go to God's word. God defines what love is in his word. You want to know love, you've got to understand it from scripture. And Paul, he doesn't really define love in these verses we just read in chapter 4, but he describes it. He gives the marks of what real love looks like. He introduces this section by saying, now concerning brotherly love, that's two words in English, brotherly love, but in Greek, it's one word. And you know, it's one of the reasons we have trouble in American society talking in a meaningful way about love is we only have one word for it. There's so many different aspects of love. There's so many different kinds of love. You don't love chocolate the same way you love your wife. At least I hope not. You don't love your job in the same way you love your church. You know, there are different kinds of love, but we all put it together under one really big, big umbrella word, and then we wonder why we can't understand each other. But in Greek, there were lots of words for love, a lot of different words. And so you could be a lot more specific. And the word here that is translated in English by two words, brotherly love, was one word in the Greek. It's a word that is also shared by one of the greatest cities on the planet, Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia meant brotherly love, but in the Greek language and in Greek culture, outside of the Bible, it always referred to, almost always referred to, blood relatives, you know, sisters and brothers who are related by blood. It meant literally brotherly or sisterly love. That's how the word Philadelphia was used in the broader culture. What's interesting when you get to the New Testament was it's never used that way. It's always used for people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. People who are spiritual brothers and sisters. That's how the word brotherly love is used in scripture. That in and of itself tells us something important about the love that Paul's talking about, the love that God gives. It's a family love. It's a family trait. 
If you are genuinely part of the spiritual family that God has created, then you have this love in your life. It's a family trait. Real love is our new nature in Christ. Verse 9 sounds like something odd for an apostle to say. Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And he says, he's talking in context about brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you about brotherly love, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He says, now he's not saying, Paul has a lot to say about love later and elsewhere. Paul will teach on love. What he's saying here is, I'm not introducing this idea to you. I'm not introducing this entity of love to you. If you know God, if the Holy Spirit of God is in you, and he actually says that back in verse 8. We didn't read that. That was the last verse of last week's passage. The very last thing he says in verse 8 is he has given his Holy Spirit to you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, if you're born again, if your heart has been made new, if you have been regenerated, then you know this love. You have been taught by God. The Holy Spirit has instilled it within you and has begun to develop it within you. The knowledge of this kind of love to a born-again believer is innate. Birds fly, fishes swim, squirrels store up for winter, and born-again Christians love. That's how it works. The Apostle John, like I said, wrote a lot about love. And he says in many different ways, in many different places, in his first epistle especially, that it is the necessary evidence that your faith in Jesus Christ is real and genuine. If you truly are born again, if you have new life in Christ by faith, then you have this love in your heart and in your life. The definitive passage is in chapter 4 of 1 John. I want to read this to you. This is uh, 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. John the Apostle says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Don't pass over that lightly. He's saying, if you love with genuine, real love, the kind of love that God created, and as we'll find in a moment that God is, then you have been born of God. You have been born again. You've been born from above. You have been regenerated. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The same day that I really dug into this passage in 1 John, that morning during my devotional time, I listened to a talk that Sinclair Ferguson, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson gave on the importance of doctrine to the Christian life, where he was saying, you know, that we as a Christian culture have downplayed doctrine. We've watered it down. We've downplayed it. We've treated it as something unimportant, and now we're bearing the bad fruit of that. And so I, I come away from listening to that and being reinvigorated in my commitment to 
studying and believing and practicing and teaching sound doctrine. And then I dig into this passage and I'm reminded of the fact that when you say God loves you or I love you, you need to understand that there is a ton of deep, powerful doctrine that is foundational to that statement. Love is a simple concept, but it is profound and it goes very deep into God's word. And what John says here, I mean, just think of the depth of theology just in the very simple statement where he says, God is love. God is love. That's profound. In other words, love is not something that God does. Love is not an attribute of God. Love is the essence of God. His very essence. And those then that are born of God, in other words, that have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, have received of that nature from God, that essence, we have received a father-like loving spirit. And then he goes on to say that the epitome, the quintessence, or even the better word would be the embodiment of that love, that God is, is when he sent his son into the world. When the eternal, co-equal son of God became man and dwelt among us. And the love that is God was embodied, became man and dwelt in our midst. And we saw what love looks like. We saw how love breathes. We saw how love acts, how love speaks. But as Paul says in Philippians 2, it's much more than that. He not only sent his only son into the world to embody love, to show us what love looks like and acts like and sounds like, but he sent his son to the cross. Not just to be a servant, but to die the death that we deserved. He says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's one of those words that no preacher should ever use without defining because it's not a word that the typical person on the street knows what it means. The word propitiation is a word that a typical person in the Roman Empire or in the Greek culture would have understood what it meant. It was a common word in their culture because it was a very important religious word to the Greeks and the Romans. Because their idea of God or the gods that they were entities that had to be appeased, that you had to do something significant to appease the gods. The gods are angry with us. We can tell in this world that the gods must be angry at us because of all the tragedy and disaster and suffering and discord. The gods must be angry or the god must be angry. And so we've got to do something to appease the anger of the god, to turn away the anger of God. So what do we do? We give money at the temple. Or we give harvest items, products to the, at the temple. Or we do animal sacrifices at the temple. Or we sacrifice our virgin daughter at the temple. Or we lay down our own lives as the ultimate act of sacrifice to appease the gods. That's what propitiation meant. It meant to make a sacrifice to turn away the wrath of the gods or the God. And the New Testament writers took that word and then conformed it to truth. And they said, you know, you guys are onto something there. God is angry. But God is love. And in his love, he sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. His son came and sacrificed his own life in our place so that God's wrath would be turned away from us. And there is the epitome of love. Not just the embodiment of love when Christ became man, but when he went to the cross and bore the punishment, the eternal punishment that you and I deserve when the Father turned his back upon him. And he died for us. That is love. And so, John says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's the nature that we've been given. This new nature is a nature that is built upon the foundation of the love of the cross. Love, real love, is the love of the cross. It's the kind of love that is not a response to what is lovely or desirable in others. That's the world's concept of love. I love you because I find you to be lovely. I love you because you are beneficial to me. I love you because you're nice to me. I love you because you do this for me or you do that for me. That's not the love of the cross. The love of the cross is a desire to benefit others, to bless others, to build others up, to make others lovely in the sight of God. That's what love does. It's unconditional and it's sacrificial, but it's not just sacrificial as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians. It's driven by a deep new godly desire to benefit and bless others and to help them become prosperous, not in the eyes of the world, not in their own eyes, not in our eyes, but in the eyes of God. That's my definition of love. This is the love of the cross. This is the love of Christ. It's finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper in the eyes of God. I need to pause for a moment and acknowledge kind of a hard truth in the midst of this is that if you're here this morning and you are not born again, if you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, would not yet call yourself a Christian, the hard truth in this is you don't know real love. You've known during your life maybe a lot of the world's kind of love, the kind of love that is ultimately self-centered, the kind of people that will love you as long as you benefit them in some way, but you've never known the love of the cross that is a unique love that comes from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner. And if you're drawn to that kind of love, if you're hungry for that kind of love, if you're looking for that kind of love, then the good news is the Holy Spirit may well be working on you this morning. The Holy Spirit may be awakening you, maybe taking your heart of stone away and giving you a heart of flesh. And you're feeling the stirrings of that fire, of that Love that can only come from God. But once you've experienced it, you'll never go back. So real love is the love of the cross. And real love is the nature of the born-again believer. Secondly, Paul is saying real love is always growing. Real love, if it's real, it's always growing. In verse 10, he says to the Thessalonian Christians, for indeed, that is what you are doing. Like he did last week, he commends them and says, you've been doing a good job. You are a loving church. I know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you because I see you loving one another already. And not just each other, but he goes on to say, you're loving the other churches in Macedonia. Not just your own congregation, but you're loving the larger church. 
giving to needs and caring for and for others and discipling others. I see you loving one another, doing a good job. But then he goes on to say, I want you to do this more and more. I urge you to do it more and more. Don't be satisfied in where you are. It's just the exact same thing he said as Owen pointed out last week back in verse one, where he says there, talking about pursuing holiness and sanctification. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see, and this is maybe an analogy that a university community could identify with. As a Christian, you are pursuing a double major your whole life. You are pursuing a major in holiness and you're pursuing a major in loving one another. And some of you have, have uh, gotten through 101. You know, holiness 101. Maybe holiness 201. Maybe holiness 301. But there are many more courses to come. Same way with loving one another. You may have gotten through the basic courses in loving one another, but you aren't going to believe how much farther you have to go. How many more courses lie ahead of you? How many practicums the Lord is going to put you through so that you really learn how to love one another? We all have so far to go. But we're all called to it. And the one thing we have to be careful about is not settling. And I would ask you all to challenge yourself. Have I settled? Have I graduated from holiness 101 and 201 and 301 and love 301, 401, 501, and, you know, I've arrived. I'm there. You never get good in this life at being holy and loving one another. But that is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not only does he create this new loving nature in you, but he has promised that he will keep growing it. You know, Paul says that he plants and Apollos waters, but the, the Lord causes the growth. If your faith is real, if your love is real, the promise of God is that he will continue to grow it, sometimes through very, very, very hard experience. But Paul was the example for us. In Philippians, again, going back to Philippians chapter 3, Paul, listen to the example of Paul. Somebody who was, certainly had more degrees in holiness and love than you and I have. But this is what he says at this point, his late point in his life. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And one of the key phrases in there, forgetting what's behind. There's only one reason you can forget what's behind, because we have all failed miserably to love one another. The only reason you can forget what's behind is because of the shed blood of Christ. It washes the slate clean so that you can forget what's behind and strain on towards what's ahead. The third characteristic of love that's in this passage, and this one's not quite so clear, it's at the very end, verses 11 and 12. He talks about how real love works for the sake of others. Real love works for the sake of others. Look at verses 11 and 12. He gives us a picture of what a loving life looks like there, and it may be surprising. He says, we urge you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 
What's the connection with those three instructions and a loving life? And I think it helps to understand the context, not just of this, the actual passage of Scripture, but the historical context here. What we know from First and Second Thessalonians is that this church had a kind of a, a specific problem, one that was a little bit unique to this church, that Paul had come there when he planted the church. Remember, he wasn't able to stay very long. That when he planted the church, he taught them many things. And certainly as he taught about salvation and sanctification, he got to the point of teaching about glorification. And the ultimate of glorification is when Christ will come again and make us perfect in both body and soul. We will graduate then. We will graduate with a state of perfection in both holiness and loving one another when Christ returns. But the problem was in Thessalonica is they misunderstood. And they thought when Paul talked about this happening soon, Paul was talking about soon in terms of the whole plan of redemption. They took it to mean literally soon in the, in the sense that they only had to wait maybe days or weeks or months before Christ would come again. And so their response to that was, well, I'm going to quit my job. And, you know, the church is doing a great job of everybody, you know, we're a loving church. And so we're providing for one another. We can do that until Christ gets here. I'm not going to work anymore. I'm going I'm to not be a part of my civic association. I'm going to check out of the sports program. You know, I'm just going to kind of hang out with my Christian brothers and sisters and pray and sing and study my Bible. And then when Christ comes again, that's great. That's how they were living. And so Paul has to address that. And we're going to see that as we go through the rest of 1 Thess Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But that's kind of in the background of this instruction. He says, you're not living in a loving way. Matter of fact, it's possible, and this sounds kind of funny to say, but it's possible to be really, really spiritual in a selfish way. In other words, it's all about me. You know, I just, you know, I want to, I don't want to live, I don't want to deal with this fallen world. I want to kind of check out. I want to live on a mountaintop. I want to live in a Christian bubble, you know. There, there's kind of a selfishness to that. And Paul's saying, that's not what we're called to. That's not a loving life. You want to love your neighbor, love your enemy, and certainly love your brother. You need to stay engaged with life. And so he gives them three instructions. He says, aspire to live quietly. And the commentators all point out that it's a paradoxical statement. He's, he's trying to get their attention by saying something that's kind of nonsensical. It helps if you translate it maybe more, more accurately in English. Be ambitious to live quietly. You know, when we think about being ambitious, we equate that with working really, really hard and, and sacrificing. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a pride-driven thing. In our mind, it's hard for us to separate the idea of, of ambition with pride. And certainly, we associate ambition with stress. And so, Paul says, be ambitious to live a quiet and peaceful life. It's kind of interesting. That, that was an important concept to Paul because he doesn't only say it to the Thessalonians. He also said it to Timothy. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I've thought about that for a long time. That Obviously, that phrase, the idea of a, of a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way, to, to Paul, that's the ideal Christian existence. And I'm not entirely sure why. I'd love to kick that around with some of you sometime. You know, what, what, what does it mean to live a quiet and peaceful life as a faithful Christian in this fallen world? And I think part of what it means is just don't, live, don't, don't make it your ambition to live a loud life. And I mean loud in the sense of making a big splash in life. You know, being impressive, 
Don't aspire to be loud in this world. Live a quiet, consistent, faithful, diligent life full of integrity and service to Christ. I think that's partly what he's pointing to. Worldly success and notoriety aren't wrong. They aren't sinful. But only a few of us are called to that. And it certainly is not to be our ambition. Secondly, he says, mind your own affairs. And again, it sounds like he's saying, mind your own business. And I think that's hard to reconcile with our idea of what the Christian life should be. We should be involved in each other's lives. But elsewhere, when he talks about these people who are living in the sin of what he called idleness. Now, he's not talking about, again, I want to remind you, he's not talking about being unemployed. He's talking about being lazy. He's talking about being idle. And he says to people living that lifestyle, later on, we'll see. He says, don't be a busybody. Because idleness leads to being a busybody. And it's the idea, you know, we don't use that phrase much, that word much anymore, but it's the idea of meddling in other people's lives in a, in a, in a wrong way, of, of not attending to your own responsibilities and your own life, but being always one there wanting to fix everybody else, you know, or criticize everybody else for not doing their responsibilities. You know, mind your own affairs, he says. And then thirdly, work with your hands. And that's an interesting one too, because in Greek culture, Working with your hands was something only slaves did. It was the ideal, the ambition for somebody in Greek culture was to get a, get a, a, a way of life so that you had enough slaves so that you wouldn't have to do any manual labor. And they looked down upon that. But, you know, Scripture is very clear that working with your hands is a noble calling. You know, God created us that way. That was intended from the beginning. Jesus was a carpenter, and thereby he gave dignity to, to hard labor with your hands. And Paul was a tent maker. And Paul often, it's amazing how many times in Paul's writings, he points to his own, even though he was a preacher of the word and had the right to make his living off of preaching the word, he worked with his hands. He was a tent maker to be an example to these new Christians. And again, I think it speaks, goes back to faithfulness and fulfilling your responsibilities, fulfilling your calling. And I realize many of us here have jobs, including myself, that don't involve working with your hands beyond using a, a keyboard. But the idea is that you be faithful in your calling, you be diligent in your work, and the idea is that you work so that you can give. You know, I remember John Piper once saying, many, some people steal in order to live, and then some people work in order to live, but Christians who love one another work in order to give. And I do think that that's where he's going with this. That's what a loving life looks like is that God created us to work. God created us to be productive. But the end of it is not being productive. The end of it is being generous. And that's really what mercy ministry is. Do you ever think about that? That a lot of times we think of mercy ministry as giving to people who have financial need or material need. But that's only the beginning of mercy ministry. It's certainly not the end. The end is by the grace of God to see somebody restored to productivity and therefore then to generosity. Because that's what love looks like. Is to be able to give to those in need. Not be dependent. Notice how he ends this passage? Don't be dependent on anyone. Don't make it your ambition to depend upon others. Be productive so that you can give. Because that's what love looks like. In Ephesians 4 verse 28. Paul is addressing thieves. Obviously, hopefully repentant thieves within the church. And he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, uses that same phrase, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
You see, that's what our calling is to be about, is to share the gospel and to share with anyone with any kind of need they have. That's what love looks like. You see, what Paul is saying here is a loving life is a quiet, peaceful, responsible, productive, generous, life full of integrity. That's what a loving life looks like. A life that doesn't have ambition to become loud and to make a big splash and to gain a big reputation in this world. Now, a quiet and godly life doesn't mean that you can't be a success, though. It doesn't mean that you can't be given a platform of honor and notoriety in this world. It doesn't mean that. Some people are called to that, and they do it well. Some people. We've been thinking a lot about the impact that Billy Graham had as he passed away this week. And I think there's a very real sense in which you can say about Billy Graham that he lived a quiet and peaceful life, in spite of him being the most popular, most famous preacher of the 20th century. Still, as you look at his life, you can say he lived a quiet and peaceful life of integrity. And you know why I can say that? It's because he didn't live a loud life. He didn't live a life to make a splash in this world. He didn't live a life to promote himself. He lived a life to point people to Christ. And that's the most loving thing you can do, is point people to Christ. A quiet life in the sense that you're not trying to draw attention to yourself. You want to point people to Christ. That's the best way you can love them, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. Point them to Christ. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think that's one of the most important verses for church leaders. I say that because church leaders are always thinking about how can we become more healthy as a church. Oakwood Presbyterian Church is a healthy church. It is a church where people are disciples who are committed to sanctification, to holiness. It is a church where people love each other well. I commend you because you love each other well. But we're always thinking about, you know, what's 301, 401, 501, 801? What are the, what, where do we need to go from here? We have so much farther to go. And so as we think about that, we think, well, what are the characteristics of a healthy church? Biblical preaching and teaching. Sound doctrine. Dynamic worship. Evangelistic zeal. These are all evidences of a healthy church, but none of them are more important Matter of fact, I would say all of them, except the foundation of the Word of God, are secondary to loving one another. We talk about our church, we want our church to be friendly. I don't want our church to be friendly, only, merely. I want our church to love one another well. And if we do that, we preach the Word, we point people to Christ, we proclaim the gospel, and we love each other well, we will change State College. We will change Penn State. We will change lives that will go forth from here and change the world. All we need is love. (laughs) But the kind of love that's here, the kind of love that is embodied in Christ, the kind of love that is shown at the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. If you had not first loved us, we would still hate you and thereby hate everyone who in any way gets in our way to getting what we want in our selfish desires. Lord, thank you for delivering us from ourselves. Thank you for giving us a living heart of flesh 
that is able to love you. And thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that continues to teach us, to guide us, to try us and test us that we might learn how to love one another better. Father, may that grace complete its work in us. And may anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know the kind of love that we're talking about, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would deepen that hunger and drive them towards Christ and the cross, that they might find the kind of love that will transform their lives, their family, their work, their calling in life, their eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.